Hi, everyone. It's Ryan Hoover, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm visiting TechCrunch HQ to hang out with two journalists that see more startups in a month than most people see in a lifetime. Josh Constein is the editor-at-large at TechCrunch, where he specializes in an analysis of social products, including everything Facebook. Two fun facts. He's a Stanford graduate with a master's degree in cyber sociology and, like myself, is a big fan of live music. Sarah Burr is a new mother and, as she announces on the show, is taking a break from reporting at TechCrunch to raise her child. I've known Sarah since she joined TechCrunch back in 2014, and more recently, she's focused her writing on the wild world of biotechnology. But we also have one more special guest, Sarah's beautiful six-month-old baby boy, Hayes. If you hear him crying and clapping in the background, apologies, we've got baby duty. On the show, we talk about how startups can compete with massive incumbents like Facebook and Google, the state of baby tech, and a bit about Facebook's first hardware product portal. But before I jump in, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors. We'd like to thank Airtable for making the show possible. I've been talking with a diverse mix of companies that use Airtable to build their business, including Ryan Delk, COO at Omni. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Tell me more about Omni. What's Omni and, and what do you do? We're building the future of how people will own and access things. I know you're an Airtable user. Can you talk about how you use Airtable at Omni? Yeah. The better question is how don't we use Airtable at Omni? Basically, every single team at Omni is using it every day in some capacity. We use it on everything from the product and growth team to manage feedback from users, to do surveys, to gather data, all the way to on the ops side to manage how people are performing. We have an API that takes all the compliments that people get about their performance as a concierge, pipes those into Airtable, allows us to do analysis, and then automatically actually built a system that kind of displays those and emails those to the concierge so they can know when they're getting positive feedback. You can get $50 in free credit by visiting Airtable.com slash product hunt. Intercom is a tool we've used since the very beginning. It powers our customer support and outbound messaging and actually helps us stay up to date in what's happening on Twitter. So I have Jake, head of support at Provident, on the line here to chat about how he and the team are using the Intercom platform to manage all the support and get feedback from our community. Intercom has a great app store full of these awesome integrations that you can use. And one of the ones we use is a Twitter integration, which Twitter is extremely important for us. We have a large portion of our community there. Um, and having it integrated in Intercom lets us just have even quicker responses to our community, stay up to date on what they're asking and needing support on, and just communicate faster with them. And if I'm not mistaken, they DM us on Twitter, actually, and it plugs right into our workflow inside of Intercom. Is that right? That's correct. A user will send a DM to our Twitter account and the team actually on the intercom side will see that and be able to respond immediately and still have access to stuff like the articles from the help center and we get the metrics and all the information that we normally have. Visit intercom.com to give it a try. Hey everybody, this is Ryan Hoover on Product Hunt Radio. I'm at TechCrunch here with a couple people I've known for quite a while, Josh and Sarah. We also have a special guest. We got a baby. Sarah, what are you holding? I'm holding my baby. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's, he's crying. He's so good. He was so good the last hour, and all of a sudden, he's. <laughs> Josh is entertaining him. He's making faces. When did this product launch? <laughs> he launched in May, actually. So he's six months old now. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Nice. Sarah, what, what do you do at TechCrunch? What's your kind of quick background here? I am a writer. I write. <laughs> 
a bunch about health tech at TechCrunch, along with other various topics you may see. But you've also written a bit about parenting tech and things like that now as a parent. Yeah, it opens up a whole, I mean, just going through the whole birth process opens up a whole new world into, you know, how broken the healthcare system is, all the technology that's supposed to fix it that doesn't, that makes it more complicated. Of course, also with all the baby tech, there's so much that we have now that my mother-in-law and my mom say, I can't believe that this exists now. You know, that that you have all these. My mom even said, you know, I thought we had the latest technology when you were a baby. And suddenly now you have all these other things that are just incredible. Mm-hmm. And most of it is just to, like, keep parent sanity, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like to keep the kid occupied and keep your sanity. Yeah. Well, we'll dive into some some parenting tech products. But, Josh, you've been you, – you're an OG at TechCrunch. Yeah, I've been here for almost seven years now covering everything, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, Facebook, but also <laughs> lots of early stage startups. What is this Facebook? I keep hearing about it. Yeah, it's this thing. It's like a, a political tool that I think was invented in Russia. Uh. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's been really fun getting to look at not only the really big tech companies, but now how those big tech companies are affecting the smaller startups, how that's influencing where startups choose to build when they realize they might just get steamrolled by these big companies or where they see that there's, that the size is actually limiting their agility and their mobility and the ability to adapt, adapt to new markets. And so, seeing a lot of great new startups that actually have a big opportunity to challenge those incumbents either by coming at them in a new direction or sort of doing an end run on them and doing something totally different and then moving into the adjacent markets later. We should dive into a little bit about the how do you start how do you compete with Facebook and and Snap and Instagram and all these others. There's a lot of really interesting theories or perspectives around like is it too hard to start a consumer startup now and compete with these giants. I'm more of an optimist. Uh, you probably are too a little bit, but there's certainly some some threats to early stage companies and competing with these these massive corporations. Yeah, I think we're seeing that it's it's not just about competing with them, but now these companies have become the infrastructure on which so much of the internet is built, and that actually leaves you open if you're too willing to take the the shortcut of building on top of their infrastructure. If you build on somebody on Facebook login, you know, you're kind of tied to them forever, and now as we've seen, if there's a big security breach, you could be vulnerable too by centralizing that security aspect. Obviously, there's advantages of building off those platforms and you can move super quickly, but there's there's a toll to pay that often comes down later in the pipeline. So let's go let's go talk about parenting a little bit because there's been a lot of it seems like from my perspective a lot more technology companies and startups exploring the parenting space more so than maybe the decade prior, and maybe that's because I don't know people are are in the technology space are aging and they're realizing that they need these tools or these services. But now that you have a little baby, what products are using what technology have you found useful? One of the biggest products, and I've written about this company before, but I was a little skeptical before, but the Snoo robotic bassinet has been a, honestly, it's been a lifesaver. That's been a really good one. It's kind of an expensive bassinet. So, you know, you have to look for sales when they go on sale, but it's been really helpful. You, It's has a built-in swaddle. Basically, it has a built-in baby straight jacket. And then it just sort of like, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. If you look at it, it looks like a baby straight jacket. To go along with the baby jail we were talking yeah, about earlier. Yeah, basically to go yeah. along with baby jail. So you, you put the baby in this little baby straight jacket that's like fits snugly to the bottom of the bassinet. And then it like 
gently rocks your baby to sleep. And it is honestly, it's been so amazing. And it's really hard to give that up because we're starting to transition him into the crib instead of this little bassinet. And it's hard. Yeah. (laughs) It has a white noise machine. It has everything that just soothes your baby. Everything that your baby wants from that he's used to, he or she is used to in the womb. Do they make them for adults? You know, I've been asked that so many times. It's so funny. I, I mean, I would like a snoo for adults as well, yeah. just to kind of like rock you to sleep. That would be yeah. nice. My parents used to drive to put me to sleep, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a classic parenting technique. He doesn't – that doesn't really work for him. He at first was like, get me out of here. Why have you strapped me into this car seat thing? Really hated it. And then he would sort of like eventually cry himself to sleep in the yeah. car seat. So it wasn't really like – the car was working. I feel like you yeah. could just put on like a VC's podcast and it should put him right to sleep, right? <laughs> that might work. That and might he, work. he might learn a few things too. <laughs> how, yeah. to, how to invest Baby in VC. Yeah. You know, but it is funny younger. though, as, as we've seen a lot of these big tech execs start to get to that baby rearing age. Now it's basically like the entire Facebook executive suite is like I, having babies yes, and going there's on. there's been an explosion in Silicon Valley. I swear as soon as I got pregnant, I thought maybe it was just <laughs> I was paying more attention to it because I was pregnant. But I swear there are so many babies in Silicon Valley right now. And I think it's actually influencing some of these companies' strategy because it's going from like, how do you meet new people and go to fun events and discover new things to do, which is great when you're younger, to how do you more deeply connect with the people that you already know and love? How do you get things done faster so you have more time to spend with your family? And I think we've seen that in Facebook going from, you know, all about how to find new things in the newsfeed to now much more about like groups and messenger and that deep connection with a smaller group of people because i think as you get older that that social circle shrinks a little bit and you you really spend the time with the people you care about and that's what we want tech to exemplify well absolutely and in fact people asked me when i was on maternity leave you know were you lonely was it hard and i said no because i had the internet that's what's changed in my generation versus our parents' generation is that, you know, you can connect with these smaller groups of like these mom groups on Facebook. They were a lifesaver when I was like, is this normal or, you know, what what should I do about this? And the, this, this was my lifeline for people I could socialize with who understood what I was going through at the same time. I was speaking with a friend recently about the aging demographic of, you know, there are entrepreneurs across all ages, of course, but it feels like the people in our generation that grew up with technology as they're aging and and maybe starting companies and also, and and I emphasize aging because I'm, I'm also aging like everybody else and I'm starting to feel less resilient. I can't, you know, go out and party as late or as long as maybe I used to. And I expect to see actually more health startups probably in the next decade than the previous decade for that reason, at least within the technology and startup space. Sarah, you've written a ton about different healthcare-related companies. Yeah, and I feel like it becomes even more personal now that I – I mean, I never stepped foot in a hospital for myself before I had a baby, ever. Like, I, I mean, except the day I was born. I didn't need to go to the hospital. Going through that experience and going through managed care was a serious – I mean, I write about it, but it was – it became real for me. Yeah. When I went through that experience, it's like we have all this technology that is supposed to solve problems, supposed to like, you know, group our records together and help, you know, doctors and nurses communicate. And 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 some of that probably does do that. I saw absolute chaos. It seemed like sometimes the technology was helping and sometimes I felt like it was, you know, kind of it was so they were so inundated with it that they were ignoring the communication. And I had to be my own advocate and say, hey, look at the chart. This is remember this other person on the last shift said this. And, you know, I had to keep reminding other people and be my own advocate more than anything. And I think that was key. And how do you do that with technology? I don't know. I mean, I get pitched all the time on startups that are like, oh, yes, we're going to, you know, solve 
this issue with hospitals, but it's it, they're always selling one to one to one hospital. It's not like they're actually connecting all the medical records or they're solving all communication problems. They're selling a product that only goes to one hospital and you have to convince that one hospital. It doesn't really help when you transfer. doesn't help when you go back to your regular doctor. It's not really a solution. So I that's something that we really need to work on for healthcare in this country. And I don't know what the solution is other than make you healthcare universal and put all our records together. Yeah. But so far I haven't seen that. I'm waiting to see something really exciting there. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, a graveyard. I think that space, I actually have a friend who started the company in that space trying to do exactly that, create a centralized place where, it's hard. you know, yeah, consumers can transfer their data across different doctors, organizations. And all these and, regulations preventing them from doing that. And, you know, and we just, it's, it's so, so many things are just disconnected. I mean, hospital to hospital to hospital to doctor to doctor, it's just all disconnected still where we're still faxing over, you know, I mean, I get this all the time. We're still faxing over our medication to, you know, CVS or Walgreens. Yeah. I mean, yeah. come on. Did you get the fax yet? It's like, really? Right. We're, we're really right. doing that right now? Yeah. I know. But it seems like we're we're at risk of ending up like USB where it's just like, oh, we try to keep on making new standards and it's just another – It's just comp- one layer. It's more fragmentation. Yeah, it's just one layer after another that's making it worse and harder to communicate. And then you have to look at what area where is this communication. And that's so critical, especially when you're in the middle. I mean, honestly, labor is crazy. So just prepare someday if you ever – have a partner that goes through it, but it it's crazy in general. And then you have this whole team that is highly educated and well regarded, and you know, top of the cl- whatever you you have you know going on, and and you're trusting them. And I'm sh- you know, and and a lot of really great people. But then if the communication isn't there and they miss something or it's in a different area on some other layer, that's they so, miss the facts. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. But we got blockchain coming, right? Blockchain will solve. Everything. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> <Will> to hear. <laughs> so your your job basically is to follow technology and report right. on what's happening. What spaces or areas are you excited about in technology or startups? Uh, one area I'm really excited about is food and food production. I think we all want to be healthier, but it's one of those things where all of the solutions are really difficult, whether that's like dragging yourself to the gym all the time or constantly cooking your own healthy food or managing your portions. It just becomes really difficult. And especially I think in San Francisco where the work and personal scene is kind of mixed, you end up at a lot of these like work events after hours where people are really compelled to drink or drink alcohol because it's always a little bit awkward being in these rooms. And I think over time, that just takes a real toll on your body. And so I'm really interested in startups that it can be kind of a push button, make me healthier opportunity. One of the ones I really like is called Thistle, which is like a health food salad company. And they deliver three times a week, pre-scheduled deliveries. This isn't on demand and subject to all the margin issues there. But instead, it's the easiest way for me to get super healthy meals that just end up in my fridge without a a lot of cost or a lot of work. And it just makes being healthier so much easier that I do it. When it, when health becomes the easier option, you do it. And I think it's similar to the way that we saw Spotify take on piracy. It was like, you beat piracy with convenience. And similarly, I think we're going to beat unhealthiness with convenience. And that doesn't mean having a better gym membership I still have to drag myself to. It could be having an amazing new in-home workout machine, like some of these new ones, like a mirror. What's that other new one tonal and tonal exactly mm-hmm. uh or these sort of health food companies that are bringing the health to you yeah yeah some people at angelus actually order from thistle because i see it every monday morning they deliver a box uh, or a bag of different salads and, and, and whatnot i think 
Another thing related to health and fitness too, that I think the hardest thing, honestly, is especially New Year's, it's coming up here. And when people set their New Year's resolutions of losing weight or whatnot, a lot of times the, the reality is they introduce, they have too much friction to actually stick to their commitments. So if it's go to the gym four days a week and the gym is a half an hour commute one way, it's not going to happen. I, I personally, I, I live right Equinox, which I fortunately get a, a membership through work, is right in between my home and the Angelus office. So it's like perfect. It's like basically on my commute home or right, on so my commute to Right, so it fits into your work. life. Like it's easy for you yeah, to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just very, very easy that way. Josh, we were talking about Creator, the robot burger making company. You went there, was it a few months back? Yeah. So I went there for the vid- the launch and did a big video interview, but now they're actually open to the public and you can just come in several days a week. They have like a lunch window and you can come and get a robot made burger that's gourmet and honestly super delicious How and very customizable. $6 per burger. Really? And so that's oh. the, that's the real innovation. In San Francisco, here. that's. That's reasonable. really good. Reasonable. Extremely reasonable. <laughs> That's less than you probably pay for a beer. And their solution there is that, yeah, we can make a healthier, tastier burger, but if it's slow and it costs more, it's never going to affect the demographic that are eating all these burgers. And so their their plan is to you know ma- make this robot that simplifies a lot of that experience uh, and makes it a lot cheaper. But the real thing that I'm excited about here is that it's not just about removing humans from the equation, because I think that. That all gives us that that empty kind of dystopic feeling of like and that oh all these people are going to be out of jobs like yeah we get these better services but it comes at the cost of all these labor uh, laborers livelihoods but really what they want to do and which what I've seen other startups like Inayoku which is a, a automated retail startup similar to like Amazon Go or these cashierless retail stores the idea is that rather than removing humans from the equation what you want to do is remove the robot elements of those humans' jobs so those humans can actually focus on what the most human personable, empathic part of the job is. And that means that you actually end up with better service, not worse. And don't get me wrong, we're still limiting, eliminating jobs. Figuring that out has got to be a priority for the world at large and the tech industry. But in the meantime, I think we have an opportunity to see people who used to have to be spending their time punching in numbers, doing data entry, being these cashiers, turning into sommeliers of whatever their their good is. And that means, you know, at this burger place, they really want to have somebody there who can talk to you about the burgers and where they came from and what the feeling and the experience taste out is. of it potentially yeah. right rather than just being like oh a robot hands you the burger and that's the end of the story because i think then you find that deeper emotional connection with the burger or whatever the product is so i hope that we can see that transfer of labor not from not labor out of the workforce, but labor into more human jobs thanks to automation. Yeah. So an example of this is actually when I was in college, I used to work at a call center and my job was to initially was just to answer phone calls. And, you know, there's there's a version before I got there. This was over a decade ago, I guess. So a long time ago. And we had an automated caller to dial out. And so here's a small example of that. Like certainly you could imagine a world where I manually had to type in physical numbers and then pull up the records in the computer. Of course, we had software to automatically call and then make that more efficient, that connection more efficient, because it's not a good use of my time or the company's time for me to be like hitting buttons. <laughs> and so like we've always had forms of this where technology has augmented or improved uh, the efficiency of, I think, everything from you know blue collar to white collar jobs. And I don't know. I'm more optimistic, I think, about the future of work. And while we do need to be concerned about, you know, loss of jobs and trans- transitions and things like that, I'm hopeful that we'll just find 
new ways to make people more efficient. I am way less optimistic. Here are basically the four scenarios that I see playing out. The first is that we retrain everybody to be smarter and more useful than robots and artificial intelligence. We can't educate people to the point of being able to do a lot of basic jobs right now. Our education system is so broken. So I have little faith that we're actually going to train people to be better than AI and robots. It's like, yeah, you know, this isn't just coming for truck drivers. This is radiologists and lawyers and lots of actually pretty highly skilled jobs. The second solution is universal basic income. And this has potential and probably will be part of the solution. But there's this really terrifying unintended consequence, which is that when you take away people's ability to be the breadwinner, you actually take away a lot of their sense of purpose and value in life. And what you see in towns where like the big factory closes, it's not just that there's lots of financial hardship, but you see massive spikes in domestic abuse, divorces, depression, substance abuse, suicide. And so when you you can't just take people's livelihood away and give them the money instead, because they're not going to feel like they have any purpose anymore. So we're gonna have to figure that out. Otherwise, I don't think universal basic income is going to work. And honestly, those are the two idealistic and optimistic scenarios. The other two scenarios are basically that we disenfranchise the poor uh, and somehow prevent the populist revolt from happening, or that populist revolt does occur. All these people that we put out of jobs go out with their pitchforks and for- torches or guns, really, and reclaim capital from the, you know, the owners of these means of production. And so none of those four solutions look very good to me. So I think we're really going to have to start thinking about how do we improve this situation? Hopefully, technology can be part of the solution because it's all obviously part of the of the problem. Do you think we'll see more people expand their career and their time into the arts? So, if you look at whether it's you know painting or music or performance art, there's a lot of different forms of creative art that I think technology probably won't, at least in our lifetime, replace entirely. And there's also a lot of value that comes from that. But right now, our economic model and the way that people pay for these things isn't isn't enough to support financially most people. Do you think there'll they'll be a shift towards more of the arts and less of the traditional kind of career paths? I think we'll see more of a, a shift towards the crafts where people actually make things with their hands and make things that are are beautiful and important. But I think some of the fine arts, we're having trouble sustaining the existing crop of fine artists. And I don't think it's something where you can just necessarily educate people and they're all going to become that much better. You know, some people just sort of have it. And yes, you can stoke it with incredible education and mentorship. But I don't necessarily think that all these people who want to become, you know, painters and musicians are going to be successful at that at the in the terms that we think of now. It might bring them fulfillment. It might make them happy with the time that they spend idle, but I don't think it's actually going to necessarily be a financial driver. And so we are going to have to figure out other ways that they can add real business value to the world. Otherwise, I think we are in for quite a dystopia. Stick around to the end of this episode for a mini interview with Marion Wu, president of GE Ventures. We talked about how GE Ventures is investing in the future of startups. Starting a business is hard. Accepting money shouldn't be. That's why Product Hunt is built on Stripe. In the early days before we had a real team or any funding, we spent way more time than anticipated trying to figure out how to collect payments from our customers. We cobbled together a bunch of different solutions, but the end result wasn't professional, our accounting was messy, And even worse, it was a terrible experience for our users. Then we switched to Stripe. Integration was easy, and we started collecting money from people around the world without janky redirects or a lot of friction. Today, we use Stripe to collect subscription revenue from makers and startups around the world using Ship. 
their web dashboard makes it really easy for anyone on the team to create new SKUs or discounts for customers without writing a single line of code. Whether you're building a marketplace, a SaaS company, or a subscription product, Stripe makes it easier to get paid. They also make it easier to get started with Stripe Atlas. Founders all over the world can incorporate a new business, set up a bank account, and access everything they need to get running in just a few clicks. If you want to start a business and make money on the internet, check out stripe.com. Sarah, when you think about now you have a six-month-old and you fast He's forward... He's getting very antsy right now. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, universal basic income. I've read the studies. It's problematic. You know, <laughs> like, what What are you going to do, Hayes? I'm talking to Hayes, the six-month-old baby. Like, yeah. What are you going to do for work in about, I don't know, 18 years? You know, my husband and I, and I have talked about uh, whether or not we need to save for college for him. Because, mm. you know, what if that's not a thing in the future? I mean, that could easily, you know, look how rapidly things are changing. You know, he might not even need to get a license. He might have, you know, we might have automated cars in the future. He doesn't need to drive. He might not go to college. He might do, you know, something else that's, you know, like in the arts or you could spend a lifetime just educating yourself on, you know, various topics that don't require, don't really make a lot of money that could really open up. But again, I think that that requires obviously some kind of basic income or some means to provide the populace to be able to do that, to free up that kind of time. I know it's going to be a very different world, I think, in 20 years. It's impossible to fully predict. But one thing that's fascinating to me is education and how VR and AR will change and augment that. A lot of my childhood was focused on memorizing things. And it's less important to memorize things and more important to understand how to find the right information and analyze, I think, the information because we have Google right next to us. And in the future, we'll have some sort of AR augmentation uh, you know, that's accessible that can answer the questions for us instantly. Uh, maybe without us even asking it. And then VR is also interesting too, because from a, imagine history class, but fully in VR is just one example. I think that is a really fascinating change to education. Like how do you, how, how much more would you learn in that type of environment and how much more sticky would that be than today's world where you see, uh, you know, illustrations and you read textbooks <laughs> about the past. We're definitely going to get rid of that looking out the window problem. You know, a lot of students just sort of tune out, but it's like that's easy when the book that you're looking at is like 5% of your total field of view. But if your entire field of view is absorbed by this immersive experience, hopefully they will really be able to to learn faster. And we're definitely seeing that already coming to fruition with augmented reality. I think a lot of people assume like, oh, we're going to have like these augmented reality glasses that give us like walking directions and show us our notifications and we like do all this consumer stuff with that's actually pretty far away but in the meantime the industrial use cases are very clear it's like being able to watch an overlay over your view of how do you do the next inst- or what's the next instruction for constructing something on a factory line or how do you take somebody who's a general practice contractor but teach them a very specific skill or a mechanic you could teach them how to fix this particular machine they've never worked on before with an augmented reality headset and i think that those that's where we're really going to see the opportunity there so hopefully what that means is that people who don't have as much formal education will be able to rapidly scale up their skills to new opportunities and new use cases. John Borthwick wrote a blog post about this and other people have used this term, but bicycle for the mind is is kind of one metaphor that people have used with technology. And going back to what you said about, you know, the uh, potential dystopian future of automation and, and, and how it might affect jobs. Also, on the other side, technology can help us, you know, be more efficient like a bicycle is. It's more efficient. We still use our legs. It's still us powering the thing, <laughs> but we can move much faster because we have a bicycle versus just our own two feet. 
The alternative analogy is that like mobile phones can be the hamster wheel for the mind, not the bicycle. Yeah. Where we basically are just like treading in place and not actually getting anything done. And I definitely feel that that when I spend a lot of time on my on my phone or on screens, I sometimes have this like this like sort of creeping sense of dissatisfaction and discontent. I was playing a bunch of Rocket League, which is basically like soccer with cars yeah. on the Nintendo Switch. That's last like an night. amazing tagline, by the way. Soccer with cars. It's super fun <laughs> for sure. But I played for like an hour and a half, and afterwards, I didn't feel like I really accomplished anything other than scoring a few goals, uh, and I didn't feel a deeper connection to anyone. And yeah. I realized that like if I had played guitar for an hour and a half instead, I probably would feel a lot more satisfied. So. I wonder how we're going to be able to get out of those loops of when we have that free time to not be sucked in by all of this immense access to content and instead think about what's actually fulfilling or enriching. And I hope where we see this go is that right now we have the entire youth landscape consuming memes, so many memes. If you don't know when these when you consume these memes, you're usually consuming them in like a dump of like hundreds of these little image memes at a time. And they're so short and they take so little time that it's really Really snackable and can feel really satisfying when you have like 15 or 30 seconds to kill. But when you spend a half hour or an hour doing this, you don't feel like you have that same satisfaction as when you read like a classic work of literature. And so I hope what we see next is that either content creators or owners or publishers or just the people that are distributing them through apps figure out ways to break those great pieces of, of literature, of content, of whether it's a symphony or a painting or a novel and turn it into a more palatable medium that the youth can want to consume or that we consume in little bits. I think the funniest citation is this was, I think we saw the New York Times, they recently were like starting to break down books into tiny little Instagram stories. You can oh, actually yeah. read a book through your Instagram Almost story. Almost like Blinkist a yeah. little bit. It seems yeah. silly, but if huh. it gets people involved, maybe you just have to read that first chapter through an Instagram story and suddenly you're like, okay, I'm going to go read the book instead of browsing these memes. Actually, an example of this today on Product Hunt is a company called O School. So they're their kind of X or Y might be like WebMD for millennials or Gen Z audience and around sex education. And so they have a platform where if you are a consumer and you want to learn more about sex, like where do you go? Like there's WebMD, which is very sterile. And then there's the kind of dark side of the internet, which a lot of people just kind of don't want to move into that space. Or, you know, for some it's dark, for others it's not. And O-School is building more accessible content education around sex. And so they have original videos. And what's kind of cool is they have really well done GIFs that demonstrate and show different parts of female anatomy. And they use these GIFs as education. And as you know, like GIFs are incredibly powerful as, as a form of expression and memes and communication. And it's very snackable, very different than other education kind of platforms or sites. And so those are, that's a really interesting take on something that hasn't been modified, hasn't changed much actually at all. You know, I, I reflect back on my sex ed classes where it was like some old VHS tape um, of some really uh, disturbing, well, at the time disturbing photos and videos of, of various things that try to scare you about, whether it's like uh, uh, sexual like STDs or birthing or whatnot. But how do you think about Sarah, about Hayes as he's growing up? And do you, are you already thinking about limiting his access to technology or video games or social media? Uh, yeah, that's funny. I was just talking with a group of people, group of parents about this. And honestly, I, I kind of take it from the approach of like, none of these things, like smartphones aren't bad. The internet's not bad. Social media is not bad. You can use it for a lot of really great things. But I think the key is being there for your child and being an active participant in their life so you know 
what they're looking at. You don't just, I mean, it's very tempting, very tempting to just turn on the baby Einstein and, you know, get things done. But, you know, one video leads to another and then you don't know what they're watching. It's something really weird. And someone's like getting, you know, slaughtered to death or something. And you, I mean, honestly, like that, that was a problem on YouTube for a while. And I think that it's just being there with your child. Like screen time isn't that, honestly, Harvard came out with a study that showed that screen time, lots of screen time is actually not bad for your child. What is critical is that you are there watching the screen with your child. So I think that all of these are tools to use that you can you can use to educate. I really actually like that idea of, you know, sex education with anatomy pictures. I'd much rather him get that kind of education than turn to porn and think that that's like real. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd much rather have him have a, a realistic idea of what that is rather than, oh, you know, this is uh, this other thing and be super confused. I guess we have to my long, short answer long is that we have to cross that bridge when we get there. But it's a reminder to me to be a very active parent and not let up on that. What are your thoughts, Josh? You've written a lot about Facebook, of course, and Snap and Instagram and a lot of other social media companies. What are your thoughts right now as as people are, a lot of people listening to this podcast are building apps themselves or maybe in the future excited to build a consumer product. How do you think about the competitive landscape right now? And how do you compete when... You know, a company like Instagram essentially copied much of what Snap created and has, <laughs> I wouldn't say killed it, but certainly had an impact on their stock price and, and their their success. So the tech giants of the modern era have read the writing on the wall and they know how disruption happens. It comes from below in ideas where they didn't necessarily assume it was going to be important at first and it quickly grew to something that they couldn't necessarily do themselves. And so instead, you see a lot of these tech giants either buying these companies as early as they can, buying them before... Like TBH is one like example. Like TBH, exactly. It's like, this is a disruptive idea that Facebook doesn't want to like get out of hand and so it buys the company. In the end, it ended up shutting down TBH, actually at the founder request I found out recently because he just said, hey, this was a fad. It was great, but it, we, you know, we're going to move on to something new. But you have to understand that these big companies have the ability to either spin up a massive division to compete with you or buy you out or buy your competitor out if they really suspect that you are going to disrupt them. And so I think with the, the next generation of founders, if you want to become super successful, first off, you can't take that first acquisition offer, the first person trying to take you out of the market. That's not the ba- that's not how you're going to become what if a massive. What founder. if it puts? Let's just I'll make up a number: ten million dollars in your pocket as as maybe a young founder, perhaps. How do you how do you pass it up? I mean, you have to just decide where you derive value in your life from. If having that ten million dollars is going to be what validates your life and lets you live comfortably and do what you want, that's awesome. If doing what you want means running a successful company that has an impact on the world and getting to actually shape the future, that ten million dollars is not going to fill that itch. And I think what we've seen is that even if you make 19 billion dollars off of your startup like whatsapp if you sell it to somebody else that means you are no longer the captain of that ship and you may never get such a beautiful ship again so you just have to really consider how do you value yourself and what what validates your own personal ambitions but if we're trying to talk about what do you do to find a a startup that, that you can build that somebody else can't copy i think it comes down to where are the big incumbents actually too big and this is something where facebook Facebook is very vulnerable. It is great at that wide breadth broadcasting sort of space. You know, starting something in like Facebook Live, where if you if you have a live stream, you probably want it to go to a pretty wide audience. 
that network is really, that's what Facebook already has. So I think so, a startup building the like a whole app around live, which isn't that common of a use case and is usually something you broadcast to a wide berth of people. That's something that Facebook is just going to be able to do better than you. But you think about something with much smaller groups, something where you're really dealing with just your five closest or your 20 closest friends, that graph kind of gets lost inside of Facebook. And I think that's where Snapchat found it could capitalize was saying, hey, they aren't great at this thing where you're going to be exchanging really personal, really sort of silly, off-the-cuff, raw content back and forth that's not necessarily fit for your bosses and your family members and all these people that have and been your sucked auntie in. auntie who you were forced to, to friend on Facebook way back when. Right, exactly. <laughs> all these people that have gotten sucked into that Facebook graph, that's where Facebook's actually really vulnerable. It's tried to make these friend lists and stuff over the years, which allow you to share to smaller groups. It's widely failed in that. The only thing it's really figured out how to do is interest-based groups with its groups product. But if you start thinking about big big companies that way, where where does their size or their past success actually prevent them from moving on an idea or complicates it, that's where you should be looking to build a startup. It's kind of like their biggest strength is also their biggest weakness to some extent. I've been personally really interested in audio and voice as a platform and interface. And we're seeing, you know, of course, People adopting uh, and buying AirPods, they have Google Homes, Alexa devices, Amazon, of course, just announced their microwave with Alexa built into it. So you can imagine every single device, maybe including this microphone in the future, will be powered by Alexa. And one thing that I found quite interesting from my perspective is you have Google Home, you have Amazon, you have Apple, all these players having some sort of, I guess, touch point within this space. But Facebook doesn't have anything in voice right now. I mean, yes, the Facebook app itself might incorporate some voice type of interfaces and technologies, but they don't have hardware like Google and Apple and Amazon. Well, Facebook have... is rumored to be having a, a new portal device, exactly. which is like a video chat device that's actually going to have Amazon Alexa in it. So, you know, that, that could change quickly. But yes, you're right. I think really the, what is true is that we have all these apps that are based around visual feeds. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, they're all based around visuals. And so that format is not necessarily going to work the best for audio. It's hard to sample audio in that sort of method. It's why we've never seen like an Instagram for music succeed. Because you can't just whip through that feed of songs uh, the way that you can with photos. You know if you like a photo within like a quarter of a second. It probably takes you 10 or 20 seconds to figure out if you really like a song. And so we're going to have to see somebody build a new medium for sharing that kind of content. And I think when people figure out what the best way to make snackable audio easy to discover, you're going to have a new big startup. Yeah. What do you think of Portal? If you were to predict right now, is it going to be success or failure or somewhere in between? I think it will really come down to whether Facebook can build on top of Alexa to build additional functionality that you don't get anywhere else. I think that's the opportunity there. Trying to just recreate what Alexa and Google Home have already done, that's not going to work. Uh, trying to just be you know, a video chat device that's basically a, a hardware instantiation of, of Messenger, I don't think that's enough. But I think if they can combine these things and focus enough on the privacy, hard code privacy into the hardware of this product, there's a chance that they could build something that is valuable because you know right now, all of these, these other home devices, whether it's Echo Show or the, the Google Google Home, you know, their new one that has a screen, like these are not social companies. These companies did not come up with the DNA of how do we communicate with each other. Google Plus was a massive flop. Amazon's never really tried. And Facebook is very good at that and they have your graph already. So if you think of 
what is the the thing that people really do in their phone that involves that sort of distant communication, which I think of as like long distance phone calls? How do you reimagine that through the Facebook lens and layer it on top of these assistants that already work as it's planning to do with this partnership with Alexa and Amazon? I think there's actually an opportunity there and people might be surprised. That said, people just really hate Facebook right now. And so it doesn't even matter necessarily if the product is great. It may just have, it might, may just be that that brand tax is too high and nobody wants to pay it. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see what they do just because to your point, they, they are a company that is built with social in their DNA and Google Home and uh, Echo and all of those devices are not social experiences. <laughs> so I'm curious to see how that plays out. So last few things I want to ask is like, what is what is an app on your home screen that more people need to know about? Or what's a product you use and love that, you know, changes change your life other than Thistle Josh or what about you, Sarah? Libby is a good one. Do you know Libby. about this? Libby, no, it's the it's the public library app. Oh. It's no, I don't know I why know more people don't use this app because it's I mean, they have updated free like you could go to Amazon, find a book that you like, go to Libby, see if it's available. Or if it's not available, put it on hold. It'll tell you how many weeks until it's off hold. I mean, it's a free book from the library. You don't have to go into the library. You just get it from the app and then you can you can either read it on the app or you can forward it to your Kindle. It's amazing. Oh, you can actually download it on your Kindle? Yes. What? Yes. Libraries nowadays, they're so I know. hip. It's, so like technologically advanced. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's like books for free and they're all you can get the latest books like that are on Amazon. It's amazing. Wow. Okay. That's a good pro tip. So I have two suggestions, which are actually like complete counterpoints to each other. So one, if you want to waste time and you want to get involved in this whole meme world, I highly recommend Imgur. It's I-M-G-U-R. They're actually a wildly popular social network of meme sharing. They have over 250 million users. People use them for hours and hours per week. It's one of the most addictive apps I've ever experienced. One of and- my one of my teammates, actually, I saw her tweet that uh, a complaint to Imgur that her phone was getting too hot <laughs> browsing imgur just because she's she's a fan and uh was scrolling through and that long exactly if you want to know the day's newest memes read some interesting sob stories or some cool scientific advancements or really just hear that like real-time riffing on culture through imagery imgur is really great now if you want to save all the time that you wasted on imgur i recommend finn which is a like a virtual personal assistant but they've really boiled it down to be super easy where you can just like text or email uh uh, you can contact them really easily and they just get it done. And so I, when I'm stuck in a tight spot, Finn has sort of been my savior. When I like had my planes rerouted and suddenly I realized I was going to have to rent a car where I got there and everybody else was going to be trying to rent a car too. I had like two minutes before my plane took off. There's no way I could have gotten a rental secured. So I just messaged uh, Finn to like get it done and have a reservation waiting for me when I landed. And everyone else was like stuck without a car and I had one. And so that was really amazing. Though I will say the number one thing that I have on my phone that I love more than anything is this shortcut that I use. You can go into your keyboard shortcuts and assign phrases that then get replaced with a longer piece of text. Go in there and create a little code that means your email, that means your home address, that means your full address, that means your partner's email. And suddenly, every time that I want to type in my email address, instead of having to go, you know, josh at techcrunch.com, I just type JCT and it's that's like my code for Josh Constein TechCrunch and it just fills in that email address. And that saves me so much time every day that I can't believe there's not like a whole app to, dedicated to these keyboard shortcuts. Yeah, Gmail kind of built some of that in with their smart replies and i don't know what they call it exactly but the autocomplete sentences have you seen that 
Yeah, it's terrifying and also amazing and fascinating to see it like adapt to like the the words that I use and it knows it knows my like stock rejection for a pitch and just like suggests that I can send that. So now instead of having to just ghost on all these people who I don't really want to read or respond to their pitches, I can actually respond really quickly and politely and then never talk to them. Yeah, it's actually I've been playing with it a little bit. It it takes a little bit getting used to the tab approach. So the for those that don't know, you basically type a sentence and it tries to predict what you're gonna say next. If I want to say something like oh i'll see you tomorrow i might type ice i'll see and then it'll fill in the word tomorrow next and i can click hit tab and it'll just fill it in what is kind of dystopian about that though is does it start to change the, the, the way that we communicate and do we become less authentic or do we start to all sound the same <laughs> there's one theory that some of this technology will do that the other theory is that it will adapt to each of our personalities and the way that we talk and It'll effectively just make us uh, more efficient at getting the words out of our head into a computer. I think a lot of people were worried about like SMS and instant messaging, that it was going to be like the end of proper writing and reading. In reality, all this social media and uh, texting meant that people write so much more than they used to. Honestly, when most people got out of school, that was basically the end of their writing. Like they might write a letter or sign their name a few times, but they weren't really typing or writing out anything to people. And so so I think it actually ended up being positive for people's literacy. And so I think similarly with this, while it might be like, oh, is it dehumanizing? At the same time, we're just going to get more done. And hopefully that means we'll have more time to actually be human rather than pretending to be empathic humans by writing these long flower emails that we don't really need to. Awesome. So what's new? What's what's uh, anything to plug? What's happening at TechCrunch? I, I, I'm personally doing a bunch of upcoming speaking gigs. I'll be speaking at Global Blockchain Forum this week. I'll be at a Web Summit, Slush in Helsinki, and then Blockchain Unbound in Tokyo. Really, oh, Tech Can you take me with you? I want to go to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tokyo and yeah. Bali for, for Blockchain oh, Unbound wow. and Open Circles so is going to be fun. TechCrunch is really great. They give us a lot of speaker training before every disrupt. And so from that, we've learned to go from lots of ums and likes and being weird and fidgety to being a little bit less awkward on stage. And so I I think it's been really fun to get to bring that out to the community and help with with more people's events. So if you're if you're ever running a conference or an event, find the TechCrunch writer that writes about what your topic is and reach out to them. A lot of times we're open to doing moderation or helping out with events like that. Yeah, awesome. What about you, Sarah? What's new other than than mom life? <laughs> mom life, actually, that's kind of a new thing for me. I haven't officially announced this, but I am taking a little bit of a break from TechCrunch for the next six months or so, just to actually be just stay on mom and uh, really enjoy just being with my baby. I made this decision a couple weeks ago. It was a very hard decision. I have to say a lot of women get into this position and a lot of parents, I think, when you start to look at the cost of childcare and nannies and uh, everything. But, and all um, these toys, the, uh, all these toys. <laughs> the toy that he's playing with right now. I know. He's kind of banging <laughs> on, the, on the table. Yeah, that's kind of, that's my personal news. That's great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me over here. For those that, that can't see us, which no one can see us, we're in the, the studio, the top secret studio in the back corner. So thanks for having me. Thank you for coming to the TechCrunch dungeon, Ryan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I can get out. <laughs> see you guys. <laughs> Bye. Hi, Marion. Thanks for joining us on Product Hunt Radio. And thanks to GE Ventures for making this possible. GE Ventures is investing in the new industrial revolution. And that means Marion works with all kinds of startups solving under the radar business problems. 
Within GE Ventures and within the Business Innovations Division of GE, how do you think about the unique advantage you have when it comes to selling entrepreneurs? Our investing leads by background are really financial investors. The senior team all came out of institutional VC. We're really experienced venture investors that understand how to partner with startups to make them successful. How do you think about your differentiator or unique value add as as GE Ventures? The part that's differentiated, again, goes back to the capabilities and strengths of GE. When we look at healthcare, when we look at energy, when we look at drones, for example, and aviation and flight, and when we look at manufacturing, GE is leaders in each of those industries. We're a leader in energy. One third of the world's energy is produced on GE systems. We're a leader in healthcare. We're the leading imaging company across the healthcare system. And we're leading in aviation and jet engines. We have tremendous credibility in the industries that we are focused on. So that credibility can be useful to startup companies. We can be great customers for them. We can be go-to-market channels for them. We can be development and engineering partners for them. And what's the future of GE Ventures when you look down next two, three years? We're really at the beginning of this big trend around digital disruption into these traditional industries. We're really at the beginning of a new model around corporate innovation. And I think GE is pushing the boundary on both of those fronts. Thanks again, GE Ventures, for making this interview possible. GE Ventures invests in startups that develop transformational technologies to solve big problems. Visit ge.com ventures to learn more. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.